You know, I think that's a powerful video. And I think part of what makes it powerful is, you know, at the beginning you're, you're kind of letting it kind of bounce off and you're not letting it hit home. And they have some funny things at the beginning which allows you to do that. But then something in some of the things that they listed hits home and it starts you thinking. And it starts you kind of pondering over those situations in your life. And you experience regret. And you experience sadness. And, and you know, we're going to talk about something kind of, I think, really important this morning. Not that everything I talk about isn't really important, but uh, we're going to talk today about what do you do with regrets? How do you forgive yourself? You know, I think that's a big piece of it, too. And I say that because I, everywhere it seems like I'm meeting people who are continually punishing themselves for the past. They, they play a game I call If Only, and it goes like this. If only I knew what I knew today, if only I could erase the past, if only I had amnesia, if only I could start over, if only I had listened sooner, if only I could forgive myself. And this, well, this time of year is the time of year the studies say that we play this game the most often. I was even talking to my, my oldest the other day, and I forget what kind of started it, but, but I shared it. I said, well, that's one of the many things I would do differently if I could live life over. I guess, not that I wanted to change who I am, but just as you look back at life, there are certain things that maybe you would have done differently, different choices that you would have made that might have been better or helped you end up in a different place or whatever it might be. But I say that because everybody's got regrets because nobody's perfect. We all have those things in our life that we look back and, man, we go, wow, I, if I could just do that over again. We make mistakes and we fumble and we stumble along. We say foolish things. We make bad decisions. We waste time. We hurt other people. We hurt ourselves. I guess it's kind of the idea behind so much of the New Year's resolutions, right? This year we're going to do it differently. And it's not always just about our weight. It's about the way we live our life. It's the way we treat other people. It's if we're honest, if we get real in the nitty and the gritty, right, uh, with the New Year's resolutions, it's, it's being a better person for the people in our lives. But it's just, to be honest, the consequence of sin. You know, you cut yourself and you bleed. That's a natural consequence of doing that. And there are natural consequences to sin as well. When you violate your conscience, you automatically have regrets. But, and you need to hear me say this, God never meant for you to live that way. If you remember, way back in Genesis, God created you and he put you in this perfect environment, the Garden of Eden, and he said, I want you to enjoy life and I want to walk with you in the garden. I want to hang out with you and I want you to do kind of the, the work that I've given you to do and it's going to be awesome, it's going to be fun. But then they made some mistakes, just like we make some mistakes today. And we're just not meant to carry that load of guilt. We're not meant to carry that kind of stuff with us every day as we go through life. We're just not meant to carry the regret. I think that's why the psalmist said in Psalm 32, 1, he says, Blessed is he, or blessed is the one, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered over. One who's actually forgiven, where you can be just who you are, where you can be open and honest, and there is nothing hiding anymore. Just imagine what that's like. And though they know how messed up you are, they still, they still forgive you. That's what God does. That's why it says blessed just means happy. Happy is the man who doesn't have any regrets. And so this morning as we begin this new year, I want to talk to you about how do we get to the place where we don't have to take these all too familiar guilt trips in our life. And the way I want to do that is just kind of start where we are. And I want to talk to you a little bit about regrets, what we normally do with them. And I think there's usually three things that we do with them. It's kind of a process. Some of you may have like, I don't know, 10-step processes or whatever you add into this. 
But I want you to think, even as you were watching the video, what do you do when you feel those regrets in your life? You start feeling that sadness or that sense, I wish I would have done something different. One of the first things that we try to employ is we try to bury them or deflect them or get to a place where we don't have to think about them at all because out of sight, out of mind, right? Maybe we just won't have to deal with it, or at least we try. You've heard the phrase, you just have to bury the past. Have you ever found out yet that it doesn't work, that you can't bury the past. It's like some old horror film, right, where the wife kills the husband and the husband keeps resurrecting himself throughout the movie and it's, it's terrifying and some of, some of our regrets. And that's the problem with regrets. You bury them or you try not to deal with them. You try just to push them away so you don't have to think about them. But your past resurrects itself, often at the most mis- or, um, inopportune times. And you don't want anybody else to know There they are rearing its ugly head, and now everybody knows. Or now nobody but you knows, but you're in there in your room, and you're spending hours by yourself going over the past. But still we make mistakes, and we try to bury our regrets, and we do that by minimizing them sometimes. We say, it's no big deal. It wasn't that bad. It's not like I'm that guy over there. You know, I'm doing good. I mean, if I compare myself to other people here, I'm doing all right. Or we rationalize them. We say things like, lots of people have done it, right? No different than they are. That's where as parents we come in and say, if they jump off the bridge, would you jump off the bridge? Sounds kind of silly when you put it like that, but we do the same things. Or sometimes we even try to compromise them. We feel guilty, so what do we do? We just lower our standards. You do something that you know is wrong and you're feeling really guilty about it, but instead of feeling bad, you just say, well, it's not really wrong anymore. God sent me a memo, and apparently this sin is no longer sin anymore. How awesome is that? And you think, that sounds funny. But we have a whole culture that's taking God's truth and pretending that it doesn't apply anymore, that it doesn't matter anymore. I read a fortune cookie one time that said, commit a sin twice, and it won't seem like a sin to you. I thought that was pretty profound, because I imagine the 50th murder is easier than the first. I don't have firsthand knowledge of that, but I'm just guessing. It's got to be easier. But I will tell you something that is true that I don't have to guess. If you do something enough, if you sin enough in one area of your life, your conscience will eventually become hardened to that. And that's a recipe for disaster. And this is even true with all called Christian sins. It's things like spending time with God in his word on a regular basis. It's like tithing. It's like sharing your faith. Things that we know God wants us to do, but we somehow convince ourselves that they don't apply to us that we're good, that God meant it for other people. But we harden ourselves, and it causes situations in our life and consequences in our life. But we try to bury them because we just don't want to deal. And when we find out that that doesn't work because it doesn't ultimately work, because they keep coming back, we start another one. We'll start blaming other people. And we're good at that. Psalm 50, verse 20, it says, You're always ready to accuse your own brothers and to find fault with them. And this is a well-known tactic. Our politicians do this all the time. You have regrets, what do you do? Simple, you blame everybody else. It's a tactic as old as creation. Adam and Eve did it, right? They blamed each other. They blamed God. They blamed the snake. They may even blame the cool, the breeze in the middle of the day if God had let them. That's what golfers do, don't they? (laughs) I had a bad shot. The wind, wind took it. That's what happened to that button right there. But we love to blame. It's the victim's way to live. But we love to blame. We accuse others so that we can excuse ourselves. We pass the buck. We pass the responsibility. It's your fault. We can't handle the regrets. We can't handle the blame. But what we find out in the end is that that doesn't work either. Because even while everybody's eyes is on the person we've blamed, we still know the truth. And we're still dealing with the regret. 
And then we kind of resort, and you might have another 14 steps in here, but we kind of resort to kind of self-punishment at that point. We beat ourselves up, make ourselves feel lousy. We know nobody else knows, but we know, and so we just keep beating ourselves up so that we're sorry enough to get to a place where we can go to the Lord. We condemn ourselves, we criticize and braid. I shouldn't have done that, and instinctively we try to pay for our own regrets. Psalm 38, verse 4 and 8, David says, and I love this, I'm drowning in the flood of my sin. And if you can get real for just a second and just think through some of the regrets that you have in life, especially over some of the things that you've done, you can feel like this, I'm drowning in the flood of my sin. It's a sin that I keep confessing to God, but I still feel lousy. They're a burden too heavy for me to bear because I've been foolish. And I say, sin makes us foolish. It makes us stupid. It just does. And we buy into all these false rationalizations because we don't want to deal with what is. I'm utterly worn out and I'm crushed. My heart is troubled. And David had just committed adultery and murder, so it's no wonder that he was feeling this way. But he starts trying to pay for it himself, punish himself, beat himself up. I'm no good. I'm lousy. And that's what we do. We instinctively try to pay for our own guilt. But there's another problem with all of these, and that's that your conscience never knows really when to quit. And so you can spend the rest of your life trying to pay for a sin that you did 20, 30, 40 years ago, but your conscience just keeps going, and Satan builds on that and takes opportunity with that and continues to make you feel lousy because of what you've done and keeps you from experiencing the forgiveness that God wants you to have. Your conscience just never knows when you've had enough. And so God comes to us in the midst of that, and, and Christmas is a great time to think. He sends his son into the world. He, he, in, he kind of imparts his son, forces his son into our existence, into our life, into our reality, and he says, I've got a better way. And so what do we need to be doing with our regrets? As you go to the Bible, it makes it really clear how we're supposed to deal with our regrets, how it is that we can get off these guilt trips that we go on. And one of the parts is if we just need to realize that that's not the way God made us. He didn't made us, make us to live under this load of guilt as we go through life. It wasn't what we were created for. And so how do we get rid of it? God says there's a process. And the first step is always this. You've got to admit that you did wrong. You've got to admit that you sinned. David said in Psalm 51, verse 3, I recognize my faults. I'm conscious of my sin. He's admitting it to God. In Psalm 32, verse 5, he says, I decided to confess them to you, O God, and you forgave all my sins. I think oftentimes this is one of the hardest steps to getting rid of our regrets. Why? Because we don't like accepting responsibility for our sins, do we? We don't like saying that I was wrong. I, I, just show of hands, how many of you guys like to do that? <laughs> no, we hate admitting that we're wrong. We hate kind of copping to the fact that we did something that was just mean or horrible or rotten. We have a hard time coming to grips with that, especially to somebody else. We don't like to admit what we really are, that we're sinners. But God says, I, I need you to admit it. And when you do, guess what? God's not going to be surprised. He's not going to go, oh my goodness, I can't believe you did that because he was there when you did it. He was watching you. He's been there the whole time. God is all-knowing, all-seeing. He sees everything that we do. But he just wants you to admit what you both know already, that what you did is wrong. And so we get to a place where we come to him, where we admit our guilt, where we confess it and say, God, I was wrong and I'm sorry. These things I did, I regret and right now, I just need to know that you still love me, that you still care. 
Uh, if you can kind of, as just a, an example of this, bring yourself back to when you were a kid, and I don't know if you did something where, just imagine a situation where you were doing something and you thought you were getting away with whatever and mom and dad were watching, but you didn't know. And so you kind of get away with whatever, and then they come to you and they say, why did you do this? And you're just like, what are you talking about? I, I didn't do that. And then they kind of go play by play over what you just did, what they just saw you do. And you know there's no way out. And you know that you've let them down. And so often that's when the tears would come. And that's when the I'm sorry would come. And at that point, what you just wanted to know is that mom and dad still loved you and that they would forgive you. And that's what God promises to do every single moment of your life. When you come to him with that kind of truth and that kind of vulnerability, he says, I'm right there. That's what I sent my son for. And I will forgive you and I'll love you through it. What's weird is that so many people do step one, but they never go to step two and receive, actually receive God's forgiveness. I meet people all the time that are continually confessing their sins, but they still don't feel forgiven. Why? Because they don't go to step two and actually receive the forgiveness God won for them. Remember when you were a little kid, and I used this example before, but you, there's an etch sketch board, right? And you have little knobs and you can draw whatever, although I kind of watch the commercials sometimes and just wonder at how they could actually draw some of those things, those two little knobs. But, but whatever, when you made a mistake, and you absolutely would make a mistake, you could turn it over, shake it up, turn it back, and it was absolutely clean again. And you could make more mistakes, right? And then you shake it up and you turn it, you know, and it would be good again. In Romans 8.1, it says, There is now no condemnation for those who live in Jesus Christ. This is the etch-a-sketch verse of the Bible. It says God wipes it out. He starts it over. He cleans our slate. There is now no condemnation. No matter what you've done in your life, God says, I can forgive it. And I can start you over. And I can start you on a new path. And I can give you a new beginning. There's nothing that you can do that can outsin God's grace. One of the most important words in the book of Romans is this word justified. Bible says that Jesus Christ died so that we could be justified. And justified is just kind of a theological term that means just as if I'd never sinned. That that's the way God would look at us. That God starts it all over. That he cleans our slate. And after God has forgiven us, he just asks us to go to a step three and forgive ourselves. And focus on the future. And I think for a lot of people, this is the hardest step. To actually forgive themselves. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 48, 19, or 18 and 19, where the Lord says this, do not cling to the events of the past. Some of you need to hear that. Do not cling to the events of the past or dwell on what happened long ago, but watch for this new thing that I'm going to do. He's just saying, it's time to get it in gear, guys. Don't keep focusing on all the stuff that's happened in the past. That was so 2015, right? But he's just saying this, let go of it. Trust me, and let's focus on the future. It's hard, isn't it? I talk to people all, a lot. Who say, you know, Pastor, you don't understand. I blew it. I, I, I could never get back to that place with God. I made a mistake. I'm just going to have to live with it for the rest of my life. And they've doomed themselves. They've given themselves a self-imposed sentence that says, I must be unhappy for the rest of my life because I sinned, or I did X, or I did Y. When the truth is that God loves to give people second chances. He says it's nature, it's his grace, it's your past is past. He says it's over, it's finished. So he says, I want you to forget about it. Don't cling to the events of the past, for it's not so much where you've been in life 
if you can comprehend that, you can comprehend how God can just forgive you so completely. It's not where you've been. It's where your feet are headed right now. It's the decisions you make from this point on that matters. God says, I can get you to a place where I can erase those mistakes of the past. But I want you to live with me in your future. And then I'll just, just to finish up, I want to talk to you just a little bit about what God wants to do with the regrets in your life. And one of the first things that God wants to do is he wants to, he wants to clean your conscience. In Isaiah 118, it says this, let's talk it over, says the Lord. No matter how deep the stain of your sin, I can take it out and make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. Now, I'm no expert on laundry, but I did a lot of laundry in my life. Uh, and there is no detergent out there that can get out every stain, at least not the ones that I've made. You just can't get them out. Not even the super all-powerful Tide. Not even when you put in like five times what you're supposed to put in, the washing machine. Nothing gets it out. But Jesus can. And in Scripture says he wants to clean your conscience. He wants to clear your memory. He wants to set you free from your regrets so that you can get on with the future. And there is a, a tangible freedom, a, a weight that's being lifted off when you're forgiven of something, isn't there? Where you know it's not going to be held against you anymore. Where there's an embrace of where you are right now, that they let you off the hook. God gives you that freedom. He says, I don't want to rub it in. I want to rub it out. But the problem is, is when we don't really believe that we're forgiven, then every time something wrong or bad happens to us, we think God's trying to get even with us. We carry guilt around, and you guys know this. You've been dealing with something you know you're supposed to be confessing or whatever, and you haven't, and something bad goes, you're like, that's God, he's trying to get at me. You have car trouble, you say, that's the Lord trying to get even with me. You have a problem at work, and you see, God sees, he's punishing me. You get the sniffles or get sick, God knows. But hear me say this, God does not operate that way if you're a Christian. It says, for all those in Christ, there is now no condemnation. He does not operate that way if you believe in him. In Jeremiah 31, 34, it says, I will remember your sins no more. I think it's one of the most amazing verses of the Bible. It says, God forgets. He chooses to forget. And I know you'd say, hey, pastor, you don't understand. He's the creator of the universe. He doesn't forget anything. And you would be right. He doesn't forget anything except for one thing. He chooses to forget your sins when you confess them. That's what he says. I will remember your sins no more. And when a sin is forgiven, it's forgotten in God's eyes, which is the most complete form of forgiveness. It says, I will hold nothing against you, not even the memory of it. As an example of that, I know there's a lot of you that have gone through the pain of separation and divorce in your life. And a relationship has ended. And some of you have regrets about that. And you've committed them to God and you've said, God, I admit it, I blew it, I made a mistake, I was partly at fault, please forgive me. And you know what? If you've done that, God says, I do. I forgive you. And when you get to heaven and you say, God, about that divorce, he's going to say, what divorce? You're completely forgiven in my sight. There is now no condemnation, no charge against you. The Bible says that Jesus Christ on the cross paid the penalty for all our sins, the ones we did yesterday, the ones we'll do today, the ones we'll do tomorrow. They're paid for. The word, Jesus, the word that Jesus used on the cross meant it is finished. It is paid in full. You don't owe anymore. Why? Because he paid the price. And so he wants to clean your consciences, but then he also wants to change your character. A lot of us are afraid of that one. But let me just say it this way. God loves you exactly the way you are, and you need to hear me say that. But he also loves you way too much to let you stay that way. 
And all of us, we've already considered New Year's resolutions. We've already thought about things that we could change in our life. We already know that there's changes that need to be made or that we want to make. And God's just saying, I want to help you do that. I want to help you grow. I want to help you become the person that you want to be, that I want you to be. Which, to be honest, is pretty awesome news, knowing that God can help us. He wants to help you change. He's not interested in condemning you. He's interested in changing you for the better. A New Year's Day in 1919, one of my favorite examples. I guess that's why I share it all the time. Georgia Tech played the University of California in the Rose Bowl. For all you Pac-12 fans, it was fun watching Stanford beat up on another Big Ten team. Shortly before halftime, a man named Roy Regals recovered a fumble for California. Somehow he became confused, and he started running 65 yards in the wrong direction. A teammate tackled him just before he would have scored for the opposing team. In California, attempted to punt, Tech blocked the kick and scored a safety, and the team headed off the field and went into the dressing room, down two points. As they sat on the bench, Roy put a blanket around his shoulders, sat down in the corner, put his face in his hands, and cried like a baby. Coach Nibs Price was silent, silent, no doubt. He was just trying to decide what to do with Roy. Everybody just sat there in silence. When the timekeeper announced three minutes until the end of the half, Coach Price looked at the team and simply said, the same team that played the first half will start the second. Players got up and they started out all but Roy. He didn't budge. The coach looked back and he called him again, but still he didn't move. Coach Price went over to Roy and he said, Roy, didn't you hear me? The, the same team starts the second half. Roy looked up with tears in his eyes and said, Coach, I can't do it. I can't do it. I've ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. I've ruined myself. I couldn't face that crowd in the stadium right now if my life depended on it. Coach Price reached out his hand and he put it on Roy's big shoulder and he said, Roy, get up and go on back in. The game's only half over. And so Roy went back in and he played that second half and everybody who saw him play that day say he played the greatest game of his entire life in that second half. The reality is that we've all made mistakes in our life. We've all picked up the ball and run in the opposite direction and we've all caused ourselves struggle and frustration and we've all stumbled ourselves along and we get to places sometimes where we get so ashamed, I don't feel like I can try anymore. I don't want to even give it up. I don't ever want to try again. But that's when God comes over to us and he wraps us up in his big arms and he says, get on and get back in. The game, your game of life is only half over. I share this stuff with you today because this forgiveness that God gives us through Jesus is such a big deal. It's why we make a big deal of Christmas. It's why Easter's such a big deal. It's one of the most important things I can give you as a pastor is realizing, embracing this forgiveness that God won for you. And my prayer is that you receive it today, that you, that you just get vulnerable before God and that you don't just push it away so you don't think about it, but just get healed so that you never have to think about it. That you let him forgive and renew so that your 2016 can be the best year ever. And that's my prayer for you guys today and pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Let us pray. God, we love you so much. And, you know, as we stumble and bumble through life, Lord, it's, it's hard sometimes. Sometimes we get stuck on these paths of rebellion and we know it's not leading in the right way and we know there's consequences that we're facing, but it's hard to kind of break out of it. Lord, we pray in those situations, give us strength. Father, there's other things that we've done and we know they're wrong. We're facing the consequences and we're sorry. And Father, in those cases, especially where we've hurt others, we pray, help us receive your forgiveness. Help us start anew 
Help us stop allowing the past to manipulate our future. Father, we love you, and we know that the more and more we trust in your promises, that we trust in your forgiveness, there's, there's peace and there's hope and there's strength. Father, those are the things we pray for this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.